Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wa ta'ala barakatuhu. Um, greetings of peace um, to everybody out there um, watching on um, YouTube live um, and eventually um, on YouTube. Um, God willing, we're going to start in just a couple minutes. Um, we'll uh, try to start uh, more or less right at the top of the hour shortly thereafter um, with today's uh, presentation on um, Mansa Musa and the Hajj tradition um, from West Africa. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. We are going to go ahead and get rolling um, with uh, today's presentation um, on uh, Mansa Musa and the pilgrimage tradition from West Africa. Just like to give um, uh, thanks to Cambridge Muslim College for facilitating uh, this, um, and particularly for my sister Zainab Kaba, who's been doing um, hard work. Um, to try to get me to um, present, um, uh, come across the pond. Um, I'm glad we're able to do this um, virtually in spite of the fact that the circumstances of COVID are uh, imposing this upon us um, now. Um, so I'm just gonna jump right in um, and I'm gonna start um, by just presenting an image of Mansa Musa um, or rather a kind of uh, depiction of Mansa Musa. And I'm, basically I'm gonna do two things um, or three things during today's uh, talk. I'm gonna start with a story that's familiar to you, um, or at least should be familiar to you. It's the story of Mansa Musa and his pilgrimage um, to, uh, to Mecca in, um, uh, and Medina in the years 1324 and 1325 CE. This was um, in the midst of his um, reign as the emperor of Mali. He ruled the empire of Mali from 1312 CE to 1337 CE. Um, and stories about that pilgrimage um, have become, I believe, quite famous um, in, uh, in the, the, the Muslim world, at least for people who have some kind of awareness of the Islamic West African tradition. Um, it is widely known, for example, that Mansa Musa carried with him um, so much gold during that pilgrimage um, that he actually devalued the gold currency in Cairo, in the city of Cairo, um, for decades after he left. Um, and the reason for that is that um, the Mali Empire, where Mansa Musa ruled, um, was the source of approximately two-thirds to three-quarters of all the gold that was in circulation in North Africa and in um, Europe in that time period. Um, and just to kind of illustrate um, the significance of Mansa Musa's wealth, I'm just gonna show you an early representation of um, Mansa Musa. This is how Musa is depicted um, in a 14th century, so this is from the, um, the, the from 1375, it's a uh, Catalan atlas, it's an atlas made for, the, um, for a Spanish ruler, um, depicting the known regions of the world. Um, so the emperor of Mali depicted here, um, wearing a crown of gold, holding an orb of gold, sitting upon a throne of gold, wearing golden garments with a scepter of gold. Um, the, this is the image of West Africa in medieval Europe. And I just want to take a moment to let that sink in um, and reflect on how dramatically the image of sub-Saharan West Africans changes 
by the 1500s and 1600s. Here they are seen as symbols of wealth, power, and authority. Um, and later they are going to be uh, deemed subhuman um, chattel, uh, um, useful only um, as the labor force um, on plantations. Uh, and we'll get there by the end of today's presentation. Notice here, and I'm hoping that you guys can see my mouse moving um, uh, via Zoom and YouTube, the city of Tanbuch is mentioned. So he's seated, seated next to the city of Timbuktu, um, which is um, a place that is known um, in medieval um, Europe um, as a center of trade um, and also as a center of scholarship. And by the time we get to the end of today's presentation, we are going to say quite a bit um, about um, about the city of Timbuktu as well. So first, um, uh, a story. Um, just to further underline the point um, that uh, this is um, a pilgrimage that transforms the world because this is an extremely um, uh, powerful um, ruler. Actually, you know what, before I get to the story, I'm just gonna show you one more image. Um, let's do this. So if you want to see more um, about uh, Mansa Musa and the Imperial Age, please do check out Africa's Great Civilizations, Episode 3, Empires of So this is an area that runs from the Atlantic coast down through the modern nations of um, uh, Burkina Faso, uh, Sierra Leone, into um, Niger, northern parts of Ghana, swinging around into what's now northern um, uh, Nigeria. Um, this is an extremely vast kingdom that stretches um, over a thousand miles from east to west and between 500 and 700 miles from north to south. Um, it is an extremely um, large and prosperous uh, center for global trade um, at uh, the time that Mansa Musa is ruling it. And because of that, I am contacted as a historian of West Africa every year um, to give an, uh, an account of Mansa Musa's wealth. Um, because different um, uh, websites, celebrity net worth, fortune, and others will often try to make estimates of the world's wealthiest human beings. And oftentimes they conclude that Mansa Musa was the wealthiest man to have ever lived. Um, they estimate his net worth adjusted for in inflation at between 400, 500, sometimes upwards of $600 billion, um, which means that uh, he can put um, the wealthiest Americans um, today um, in his pocket um, uh, many times over. So this gives you some sense of um, the power that uh, Mansa Musa uh, uh, wielded. Now, um, that will help situate the story that I'm gonna tell um, to, to begin. And I'm gonna tell, so I'm gonna tell a story that's about Musa uh, and his Hajj at the beginning. I'm gonna tell a story about the Hajj that you haven't heard at the end. And in between, I'm gonna paint a picture of what Mansa Musa did with his pilgrimage, um, what he did with his wealth and how he transformed history through it. So here's the story. Um, as Mansa Musa is passing through, the city of Cairo um, wrecking <laughs> the local currency with his uh, gold spending. Um, uh, it becomes quite um, a, 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 a spectacle um, and an extraordinary occurrence um, to see this West African ruler who is so powerful and so wealthy um, coming through lands that um, uh, West African kings have not previously traveled to um, in, in significant ways. So there's an effort to broker a meeting between Mansa Musa and the nominal caliph in, uh, in Egypt at the time, uh, the Mamluk Sultanate is uh, essentially uh, claiming rule over the caliphate. 
But there is a problem um, in creating this meeting during uh, Musa's pilgrimage because the custom of greeting the Mamluk Sultan at that time is that when one enters into the chamber, um, the, the meeting chamber to meet the Mamluk Sultan, one makes two prostrations in the direction of the, the Sultan before entering. Um, in spite of the, the fact that many of you will, will uh, will point out that prostration to human beings is a thing that is uh, discouraged and or forbidden in the religion. That was the custom of the Mamluk sultans as a symbol of their um, power, um, as a symbol of their um, dominance. And uh, so the meeting is supposed to take place and Mansa Musa with his retinue is waiting outside the anteroom um, before going into the inner chamber because Musa has been informed that he is meant to prostrate himself to this king before he enters the chamber. So they're there for hours because he is not about to go in and prostrate himself um, to anyone other than God. And he is certainly not about to go in and prostrate himself to another king because there is not a king on the face of the earth at this point in time, whether in China, whether the Mamluk Sultan, whether any place else that has more military power, more economic power than Mansa Musa. He is likely the wealthiest human being of all time. I would probably go with King Solomon, but that's a matter for, for debate. But he is also um, in charge of the most powerful military force on the planet at this time. Um, the rulers of Ghana, which was the empire before Mali came to prominence, um, this is in the, from in the period between 600 and 1200 CE, um, Ghana was at its height. There's an 11th century um, Arab historian called Al-Bakri who writes that the emperor of Ghana is capable of putting 200,000 soldiers in the field of battle, 40,000 of them archers. Mansa Musa's military capacity exceeds that of the empire of Ghana because his kingdom is larger and wealthier and has more access to people and has more access to gold. So he has the largest, most powerful military. He is one of the wealthiest human beings to live in human history. He is not about to bow before any earthly king. So they're stuck um, and over the span of hours, there are scholars from Musa's retinue going back and forth, um, meeting with the, the king's retinue. And finally, uh, they come to an agreement. Musa will enter the king's uh, chamber, he says. Point himself in the direction of the Qibla. Offer two rakahs to his lord and then sit down and enjoy uh, the, the company of his brother, the Sultan. All of this is to say that Mansa Musa was well aware of the fact that he did not need to take a backseat to any earthly king, but it is also to highlight Musa's personal piety. He was not someone who took uh, his understanding of religion lightly, um, and for him, prostrating to other um, than, than God, um, uh, was something that was unfathomable to him in spite of the fact that this was the custom of the Mamluk sultans. So to return to the slides, this becomes clear in what Mansa Musa does with his pilgrimage. Musa does not simply um, undertake this opulent um, uh, visit in order to display the wealth and the power and the authority of the empire of Mali in the Eastern lands of Islam where it might be known only through reputation but not directly. Rather, Musa has a strategic plan that is rooted in his personal piety. He is, um, understood to be a person of, uh, of deep personal piety, but it is also rooted in a strategic plan is that while Mali has extraordinary wealth in gold, Mali also has extraordinary wealth in scholarship. And he is trying to 
build that knowledge base in his empire so that the power of Mali doesn't just depend upon its material wealth and its military strength, but rather knowledge. And this goes back to that city that is depicted next to, Tim, uh, to, to, to the rulers of Mali on that um, Catalan atlas that I just showed you, the city of Timbuktu. Um, and here is the uh, 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 Senkori Mosque um, in uh, Timbuktu. This in the time of Musa is becoming one of the principal centers of Muslim scholarship anywhere in the world because Musa is investing that gold wealth, that wealth in, from commerce, that wealth from trade into knowledge, logic, theology, philosophy, mathematics, astronomy, medicine, history. Um, there uh, 115th century account says that there are at least 80 schools um, in the city of Timbuktu in the 15th century. Um, the greatest teachers in the world are drawing students from across the Sahara Desert. Um, and Musa's plan is to invest in that scholarship so that he can build that knowledge base. And his trip is designed to um, attract scholars, merchants, people that can provide benefit to the empire of Mali um, to come back with him, which is what uh, that pilgrimage ultimately um, produces. Um, not just cities like Timbuktu, um, but also its sister city, Jene, further down the river, the Niger River um, in Mali, because the empire of Mali is vast and it contains numerous urban centers in it in the medieval period. In fact, those urban centers, some of them like Jene, go back not just before the arrival of Islam in the seventh or eighth century CE, but they go back um, to 1000 BC in the case of Jene, 1500 um, BC. These are centers of local West African urbanization that predate Islam. Complex societies came into being in this part of the world without any outside impetus from Islam. Rather, it is the, the connection of um, Muslims to uh, West African Muslims to the broader trading and, and uh, intellectual worlds of Islam that turns Mali into a great empire, but it is built on an older base of West African civilization, West African urbanization. And at this point in time, it is useful to say something about um, how Islam spreads to this part of um, uh, the world because it is uh, deeply um, significant that we understand that um, in contradistinction to the places that become the lands of the caliphate, Islam is not spread to sub-Saharan West Africa through any military occupation. Um, there is no external conquest of Sub-Saharan Africa that spreads Islam south of uh, the desert. Um, what happens instead, what happens instead is that there is a gradual spread of Islamic teaching that spreads Muslim institutions um, throughout Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so it's crucial to understand that with an empire like the empire of Ghana already present and Ghana's map here is drawn with a hard line circa 1050 CE. This is an empire that goes back at least to about 600 CE and that incorporates some of those early urban uh, centers in West Africa and uh, also controls um, gold production um, here in the Senegal um, River region. And that emperor of Ghana that I mentioned before from an 11th century source is capable of putting 200,000 men in the field, 40,000 of them archers. Just understand that there is no external military force that is capable of crossing the Sahara Desert and defeating an army of 200,000 soldiers. 
if you have been told that there was some kind of extension of the Arab conquest through which Arabs submitted sub-Saharan Africans to external Islamic rule, you have been misled by false history and false doctrine. That simply did not happen. Not only did it not happen in West Africa, but it did not happen in East Africa either. When the Arab armies marched up the well, um, up the Nile River in 652 EC CE after the 641 CE conquest of uh, Egypt, they met uh, Christian Nubian kingdoms, um, black kingdoms of the upper Nile. Um, and the contemporary accounts from their sources say that the Nubian archers could put an arrow into your eye from 300 um, uh, paces away. So we signed a truce. While the rest of the world was being um, subjected to an Arab military conquest that stretched from um, uh, southwestern Europe all the way through to the South Asian um, subcontinent, no such military force was capable of occupying Sub-Saharan Africa. And this is not just a statement about the, the effective archers and the powerful military forces of West African um, and East African kings, but it is also an invitation to reflect on the different dynamics that therefore inhere in the way that Islam is spread because this is also shaping Musa's strategy. It is also shaping the pilgrimage tradition from West Africa. Now, what do I mean by that? Take a step back and zoom out um, and understand that, that the African continent is today the only continent in the world that has a Muslim majority. When you draw a line through what used to be the empire of Mali, and stretch it all the way through Ethiopia where Islam first comes in 615 and 616 CE, you find predominantly nearly exclusively Muslim societies from Senegal to uh, Somalia. And what is interesting is that in all of those places where Islam spreads, it is spread through voluntary adoption by indigenous African lineages, indigenous African ethnic groups. It is not spread through an external military conquest by Arabs. And that, I will argue, is the reason why the proselytizing in Sub-Saharan Africa has been so much more extensive and so much more effective. It is not a thing that was imposed from the outside. It was a thing that was fostered from the inside by teaching families that I'm going to talk to about in just a moment and by forward-thinking political rulers who, instead of imposing Islam through military activity, used state resources and state patronage to try to foster Islamic institutions. What Musa does with all of that gold wealth is that he invests it in mosques, in schools, and in the scholarly traditions of his West African ancestors. Which brings us to this. This is the basis of Musa's personal piety. It is the basis of the spread of Islam in sub-Saharan West Africa that flourishes in the medieval period. And that is the production of an indigenous clerisy. We often say that Islam has no clergy, which is true, but the word clerisy means a group of religious specialists. And it also means a group that specializes in intellectual pursuits. And that is exactly what the West African scholarly tradition produces, an indigenous West African clerisy. Here, they um, uh, specific families um, with last names like Drame and Sise and Jane and Ture. Um, uh, these are um, families that accept Islam early after it is brought by merchants, not warriors, um, and itinerant scholars. And then they become the agents that spread Islam through those West African imperial states. And in those West African imperial states, the clerical group emerges distinct from political authorities. The families that specialize in the teaching of the Quran and building Quranic communities are the ones that do the actual work of spreading Islam. This is the jihad of the wooden tablet, the lauh or alwa as it's sometimes called, on which the Quran is learned and taught. 
that spreads Islam in these regions. And so while political authorities like Musa are meant to foster the work of scholarly lineages, foster the work of teaching families who are also specialists in medicine um, amongst other things. They are not meant to interfere directly. They're meant to offer state patronage um, and support, but to allow um, the ulama, allow the people of knowledge, allow the learned um, to act independently. Um, and this is a critical um, distinction because uh, what evolves in the imperial age, and this is something that is greatly reinforced by Mansa Musa himself, is a separation of church and state, a separation of the clerical lineages from the political authorities, not just to protect the state from the influence of religious authorities, the way that church and state separation functions in Western societies, but rather to allow autonomy and independence for those clerical um, families. I'm just gonna move ahead um, to a, a different slide so that you can see this illustrated. So this is from um, a portion of an account, the Tariq al-Fatash, uh, which is uh, a wonderful book by my colleague Mauro uh, Nobili has uh, demonstrated is actually a composite text, but this comes from um, an authentic portion of that uh, text. And it refers to one of those, one of the early centers for the emergence of that local indigenous West African clerisy, a town called Jaga or simply Ja, and I'll show that on a map in just a moment. But this historical account um, from about a century or two after um, the, the uh, the fall of the empire of Mali says that Jaga was governed by the Fukaha, by the, the, um, the legal scholars. The king of Mali never entered within and no one had authority there except for the Qadi. Whoever entered this city was protected from the king's violence and oppression. Even if he had killed the king's own children, the latter could not claim blood money. They called it the city of God. This is a kind of inviolability um, for uh, scholarly communities that is uh, something that is not unique, but precious in the history of, of Islam. Um, kings do not violate the sanctity of clerical communities. They do not violate the sanctity of those communities of the Quran. And I'm just gonna to go to another slide to demonstrate this. These are what, this is what Quran schools look like in the early part of the 20th century. They don't look very much different from this in West Africa now. These are the basic institutions that state support in the empire of Mali is going to. <laughs> it's funding, public schooling, for lack of a better word, where young boys and young girls develop widespread literacy skills. West African society, because it focuses on the education of boys and girls, and because um, it is the basic institution for religious socialization in the medieval period, literacy rates become very high in Sub-Saharan West Africa. Um, boys, girls, um, whether of um, whatever their social origins, often learn the basics, learn the basics of reading and writing in the medieval period. Going back to this period, at least a third of the students in Quran schools were girls. And those are levels of female education that aren't going to be reached in any um, Arab societies or in any Western societies until the 20th century, maybe the 19th. So this is a depiction, this is a picture that I took myself in the Senegal River Valley of a contemporary Quran school. And you just notice that the, that wooden board um, where learning, where instruction in God's word, where literacy is um, spread is still the basic means of instruction. And you can find these um, alwa throughout West Africa 
um, and they're, they're not the basic means for instruction anywhere else in the Muslim world today, but I'm just gonna add that this is the way that the Quran was taught in the Prophet's own community, peace be upon him, in Medina. Because the authentic Hadith said that they learned, the children learned Quran on the Al-Wah, on these wooden tablets, and also on the broad, flat um, shoulder blade bones of camels and cattle. Those were the writing surfaces that were used in the time of the messenger of God, peace be upon him. And those are the writing surfaces that are used to teach the Quran in West Africa today, just as they were the surfaces that were used for the teaching of the Quran in Mansa Musa's own time. He himself learned the Quran on a wooden tablet, just like those depicted here. So you have a political unit, the empire of Mali, which stretches um, as, you know, uh, which is months travel, um, uh, more than a month's travel from one end uh, to uh, one of its ends to the next, from the Senegal River, the modern day countries of Senegal and Mauritania, um, through Mali, all the way in through Niger to, to Nigeria that dips down into the forested regions of um, West Africa. And in all of these places, you have uh, a separation of church and state where political authorities are taking counsel from rulers, or excuse me, are taking counsel from scholars but where scholars themselves are allowed the autonomy and the separation from political power that allow them to function as critics of the way that states exercise their power. And this is a really, really crucial uh, point because this was the normative relationship between religious authority and political authority in many parts of the Muslim world that weren't part of the, the, the caliphate. Um, whereas what usually happened in the caliphate is that state uh, uh, authorities um, had religious scholars who would write fatwas to justify whatever um, political impositions they wanted to impose in society. Remember that the king of Mali couldn't enter a clerical community like the town of Jaga, even if somebody had killed in it, had killed one of his own sons. If they fled to a place like Jaga, they were safe. If they fled to a place like Kabara, um, they were safe. These are places, by the way, that are mentioned by Ibn Battuta in his 1352-1353 um, CE travel account when he crosses the Sahara Desert and visits the Empire of Mali in what will be the last of his famous travels. He says many, many things about the Empire of Mali, but a principle among them, he says that amongst all of the peoples of the world, the Blacks are those who most abhor injustice. He talks about how there's absolute peace through all of the areas controlled by the Emperor of Mali. He also talks about the fact that no one is more committed to Quran schooling, that he passed one day um, uh, through a town where he saw a youth change and chain, and it was on a day of Eid, as a matter of fact. So as we're approaching our Eid, we can picture an Eid day that took place in 1350 in West Africa, where a visiting traveler from North Africa walks through a town uh, along with his guides and sees a young person chained up on the Eid day. And he says to him, what has this youth done? Has he killed someone? And he says it in Arabic. And in spite of the fact that he's in a Mandingo speaking area, the boy understands it because the children all learn Quran. They all learn Arabic there. So the boy that's chained up laughs. And uh, Ibn Battuta's guide says to, to, um, to him, he's, he didn't kill anyone. He's chained because he has been slacking in memorizing the Quran. So that even on an Eid day, if somebody is treating the Quran with disrespect, if someone is minimizing the Quran, if someone is not giving the Quran its proper place in West African society, then there's gonna be consequences and repercussions because West Africans don't play that when it comes to the Quran. The studying and the learning of the Quran is the basis of how Islam was spread in West Africa because it was spread on that wooden board, not spread by the sword and commitment to the Quran and the learning and teaching of the Quran is the basis of all Western West African civilization, all West African Islamic civilization. 
And Ibn Battuta clearly says that. He said he's never seen any people more committed to the learning and teaching of the Quran. This separation of church and state that I mentioned before leads to um, the, the development of a moral and social philosophy for the spread of Islam that predates Musa's pilgrimage in uh, the 1320s. And this is the oldest tradition of, of teaching that still survives this town of Jaga that is mentioned um, here. Ja or Jaga that I just showed on the map gives birth to the oldest still recognizable scholarly tradition, one of the two oldest still recognizable scholarly traditions in West Africa, the Jahanke or Jahanke um, tradition. Jahanke are a group of Quranic scholars. They're the people that pioneer the teaching of the Quran in West Africa. They also specialize in, um, in tafsir of Quran. They specialize in the teaching of uh, Maliki fiqh going back to at least 800 CE. So you can document this tradition for 1200 years and evolving their institutions in spaces where Islam is a minority religion at first that is not being spread through political violence. The Jahanke teach the Quran um, and develop a philosophy rooted in Maliki fiqh that allows them to have peaceful coexistence with surrounding populations, even when they're not Muslim. And the points of that basic doctrine um, are illustrated here. Um, on this slide, the, the idea that unbelief is a result of ignorance rather than wickedness, and it is God's will that some remain in ignorance longer than others. There's no compulsion in religion and true conversion occurs in God's time. Jihad is not an acceptable means for converting non-Muslims. It's only legitimate in self-defense to protect the very survival of the community. Muslims may support non-Muslim rule as long as they are allowed to practice Islam, because it's crucial to point out that under the empire of Ghana, when Islam is first spreading under a West African empire, the rulers of Ghana are not Muslim. But Islam is becoming a significant minority and ultimately majority religion because indigenous West African Muslims are serving as ministers um, for the, the emperor of Ghana. They're serving as translators. And because they're spreading out through village communities, teaching Qurans on those wooden tablets, they are enjoying state patronage from non-Muslim rulers. And because of that, they transform the society into one of Islam without shedding a drop of blood. How do they keep their Islam sound and intact when they're surrounded by people that believe other than them? They present an example to be emulated so that non-Muslims will come to Islam amongst the Jahanke. They're explicit about not making dawah. You don't preach to people about Islam. You show them what Islam looks like by providing benefits to the children of Adam. And then people will want to come to Islam. And in order to not lose your um, Muslim um, the, the, your basic religious practice and the sanctity um, of uh, the core worship, you make scholarship the center of your uh, life as Muslims to keep your Islam from uh, falling apart when you're surrounded by uh, people that believe otherwise. It was that approach that allowed for the effective spread of Islam throughout Sub-Saharan Africa in the centuries that um, preceded uh, Musa's pilgrimage. So let's take a second to, to consolidate some gains before I bring us into to the last story. Musa is uh, famous throughout the um, world for his wealth, but the way that he invested that wealth was in scholarship, not through attempting to purchase and bribe scholars, but rather through lavishing state patronage on them and then giving them the autonomy to teach and accepting um, ethical, moral, social, and political critique from the scholars that he invested with authority. 
in the later empire of Songhai, which will be the, the, the third of the, the, the great West African empires, when Songhai rulers be, start to exceed the bounds of just rule, it is only those scholars of Timbuktu, only those scholars of Jaga, only those scholars of Jene that are capable of um, getting them back in line by speaking truth to power. This West African scholarly tradition that brings people like Musa into to being is rooted in a dedication to the Quran, a dedication to teaching and providing benefit to the children of Adam because Quran and basic literacy were not just taught to Muslims. Non-Muslim children attended Quran schools as well and learned to read and write. And more often than not, they became the vehicle through which their parents accepted Islam. You teach the truth <laughs> to people and eventually they will choose it for themselves because as they say in Wolof language in Senegal, Domo Adam Adolfo, the child of Adam ain't stupid. You show them something good and they are going to want it for themselves. Compulsion is fundamentally incompatible with the spread of religion because as Sheikh Tijani Sise, the great West, contemporary West African scholar put it, when you compel somebody to believe in something, you don't gain a believer, rather you gain a hypocrite. So by not imposing Islamic identity on the society at large, by not opposing, imposing a particular political model on scholarly families, the, the West African tradition evolved the most effective means of spreading this religion. And because of that, Africa became that only place in the world that has a Muslim majority. In spite of colonization, in spite of all of the challenges um, to the spread of Islam that came later. So we mentioned Jaga, we mentioned um, the empire of Mali and the kind of ruler that Musa was, the, that he was somebody who was not just there in Cairo to do the boss floss, showing off how much gold he had, but rather he was attracting architects, he was attracting um, scholars, he was attracting people to come back and strengthen his, the knowledge base, diversify the knowledge base that was already present in his empire. And that knowledge base, that um, the, the wisdom rather of Musa's decisions play out in the generations that follow him in the empire of Mali, in the empire of Songhai, is that that West African scholarly tradition has an efflorescence, it has um, a peak, it has the summit um, or at least what has now been uh, up to now been the summit of that uh, experience in the teachings of people like uh, Moribo Muhammad al-Kabri or Muhammad al-Kabri, Ibn Abi Bakr, Ibn Ali, Ibn Musa, who was one of the scholars in, in the early 1400s in the city of Timbuktu. He came from the, the town of Kabra, which was mentioned by Ibn Battuta along with the town of Jaga in his account from 1352 as places where the people were old in Islam and seekers of knowledge. So Ibn Battuta identified Kabra and Jaga as these two towns where the Islamic tradition was especially deep and especially profound. And this, the page that you're looking at right now, is probably from the oldest surviving text written in any language by a West African from a scholar called Modibo Muhammad Al-Kabari who taught in the city of Timbuktu in the early 1400s, um, almost a century after uh, Mansa Musa's famous pilgrimage. And I'm gonna end our presentation today before I take questions by talking about him and I'll end with a story of his, uh, related to, to one of his uh, activities in the, um, 10 days, first 10 days of Bulhajjah. So this book that you're looking at is called Bustan al-Fawaid wal-Manafia, the, the, the Grove of Gains and Benefits. Um, and as I mentioned before, it dates probably from the early 1400s and it's the oldest surviving text that I've been able to locate that's written by a West African in any language. Um, remember that there's widespread literacy in the bend of the Niger River, there's widespread literacy in Senegal, there's widespread literacy in what's now northern Nigeria, um, all in this um, period. Um, so Modibo Muhammad al-Kabari is a particularly um, accomplished religious scholar, but he's coming from a place that has many religious scholars. Um, but this is an account from the Tariqa Sudan 
about Modibo Muhammad al-Kabari himself, and it is worth reading uh, uh, at some length. Among the lords of the people of Sankore, Sankore was that mosque that I showed you um, early, kind of the center of religious scholarship in Timbuktu. Among the lords of the people of Sankore was the Sheikh, the Faqih, the righteous Wali, the righteous saint, the judge. So we'll translate all the Arabic. Among the lords of the people of Sankore was um, the, the teacher, the jurist, the righteous saint, the judge, Modibo Muhammad Akaburi. It's sometimes Kaburi instead of uh, Kaburi. Uh, the, the short vowel changes and sometimes when it's, his name is uh, transcribed. The Sheikh of Sheikhs, may God most high have mercy upon him and be pleased with him and cause him to benefit us in both abodes. He settled in Timbuktu in the middle of the ninth century and was the contemporary of many of the Sheikhs there. He attained the very pinnacle of scholarship and righteousness and was the teacher of the jurist Umar ibn Muhammad Aqid and Sidi Yahya Tadalisi. These, by the way, um, Umar ibn Muhammad Aqid and Sidi Yahya Tadalisi are both Shurafa, um, who are the most famed scholars of um, the 16th century, um, uh, late 15th and, uh, and early 16th century in Timbuktu. Um, so numerous were Kabari's students, it is said that he let no month go by without one of them finishing with him a reading of the Tahdib of Bara'adi. At the time, the town was full of Sudani scholars, people of the West who excelled in knowledge and righteousness. People even say that interred with him in his mausoleum, there are 30 Kabaris, all learned and righteous. Kab, uh, Moribo Muhammad al-Kabari was a particularly famous scholar, but he came from lineages of famous scholars that came from the West. And at that time, students from Senegal, from Mali, from all over the Western part, from Gambia, from all over the Western part of the um, West African Muslim world, right to the coast, came to Timbuktu because it was the center of scholarship at the time. People from Futa Jalon, people from um, what's now Sierra Leone and Guinea, people from what's now Burkina Faso, all flocked there, jet black West African scholars, learned and righteous. The, just to, 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 to say a quick word about uh, Kabadi. Um, Kabadi's students included um, Shurafa from Baghdad, from Mecca, from Medina, from all of the countries of North Africa, who through his reputation as a scholar, which was carried by pilgrims who went every year from West Africa um, to the Eastern parts of the Muslim world. His fame as a scholar and the learning of those students that made the pilgrimage so greatly spread the word of the, the town of Timbuktu and people like Modibo Muhammad Al-Kabari that when scholars um, were confronted with the superior knowledge, especially in Maliki fiqh, but also in um, many of the esoteric sciences of Islam, that they left the holy cities to go to West Africa to study. And there are documented instances of scholars leaving South Asia, leaving East Africa, um, leaving the Caucasus region, leaving um, North Africa to go to West Africa to study with people like Modipo Muhammad al-Kabari. As Musa had intended, the, the local clerical families and the centers of scholarship in West Africa became a light of the world. He was not just flossing with all that gold. And now to the story, because he was not just a scholar of the, the Zahiri science, but as is often the case, because in West Africa, saintliness and scholarship travel together. I'm going to end uh, today's uh, reflection on the West African pilgrimage tradition with the story, because we don't believe that Modibo Muhammad al-Kabari was ever able to make the pilgrimage himself. But one day in the first 10 days of Dhul Hijjah, the Sheikh went out to buy an animal for the feast of the sacrifice. The animals were on the other side of the river. The Sheikh, accompanied by one of his disciples, began to walk upon the river. The disciple followed him since this seemed to him the thing to do at the time. God only knows why. The disciple sank right in the middle of river, the river just as the Sheikh reached the other side. 
The latter called out to his disciples, stretched forth his hand and pulled them out of the water. Then he said, what compelled you to do that? When I saw what you did, I did it, he replied. Then Motibo Muhammad of Kabali responded to him, how could you compare your foot to one that has never walked in the path of disobedience to God? The West African scholarly tradition wasn't just about knowledge, but it was also about um, ethical purification and spiritual elevation. It was about cultivating obedience and scrupulousness and careful care for the sunnah of the messenger of God, peace be upon him, and embodying excellent traits of character and abandoning all forms of disobedience so that you would reach the station of having spiritual unveilings that God would gaze upon you and therefore sometimes occasionally allow the ordinary rules that apply to us to not apply um, to uh, these great saints and these great scholars. Modibo Muhammad al-Kabadi was one of those scholars and in the um, first 10 days of Dhul Hijjah, we are told he performed a miracle like that of Jesus walking upon the water. He performed a miracle like that of Sheikh Ahmed Obama, the famous Senegalese scholar, who when he was sent into exile by the French colonial state several centuries later, cast his prayer mat upon the ocean and prayed to Rakaz on the waves when he was uh, prevented from uh, praying upon the vessel that carried him into exile. And as we close reflecting on vessels carrying people into exile, I'm gonna bring this story back uh, to where it began um, to highlight the disjuncture between two images. This image representing the saintliness and the scholarliness of the, the medieval West Africa that Musa represented and made famous throughout Europe and throughout the rest of the world, that uh, orb of gold, um, but also that uh, light of knowledge. That was the West Africa that was known um, in uh, medieval Europe. And this is the West Africa that was known in early modern Europe. Um, Africans get transformed from pillars of scholarship, wealth, and piety into objects to be traded in the holds of slave ships. Um, and unfortunately, in today's American and global Muslim community, um, the racial ideas that transformed Africans from pillars of exempl and exemplars of knowledge and piety into uh, subhuman um, commodities. Those ideas still in here in our communities because we don't know these stories from African history. We have not learned about great people like Mansa Musa and Moribo Muhammad al-Kabari um, who represented um, the just ruler um, who uh, fosters the spread of truth and ethics in a society, and the scholar who assiduously distances himself from political concerns and instead focuses on guiding hearts um, and teaching by the pen. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wa ta'ala barakatuhu. And at this point, I am going to go ahead and open things up for questions. I'm just going to have to open the documents so if I can see the questions as they come in. Okay, so there's a few questions. Um, I'll just, I'll take them uh, more or less in the, the order um, that they deal with the history chronologically. Uh, my, my question is related to the comment that there was never any Islamic conquest to Africa. Wasn't Egypt invaded by early Muslims, Abra ibn Alas, or is it an exception? So what I said specifically was, is that there was never any um, Islamic conquest of Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, for sure, Egypt and all um, through, you know, to the, through, through Morocco, to the, to the foam of the ocean, as the Hadiths um, uh, mentioned, um, all of that um, is, uh, is subject to those early, um, to those early conquests. Sub-Saharan Africa is not. So that, that conquest of Egypt takes place, as I mentioned, in 641 CE. The effort to extend that through the Sahara Desert south of Egypt, um, unfortunately, or, um, uh, 
uh, well, depending on how you look at it, um, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, is unsuccessful. It's the only military defeat that the Muslims suffer in that early period. Um, it's the only military defeat. Um, so they make a compact called the Bakht, the Pact, with the Christian Nubian kingdom of Makuria, and they exchange tribute annually. Um, so there is no um, jizya that comes in at that uh, point in time. Um, it is a, a mutual recognition pact between um, a Christian uh, kingdom and uh, uh, the, the Muslim empire. And it, this is not actually, this is the basic pattern actually of relationships because something similar happens with Ethiopia. There's not a military conquest of Ethiopia and there's famous hadiths where the prophet peace be upon him says, leave them alone. Um, so yeah, the relationship of uh, Islam, uh, Islamic conquest to Sub-Saharan Africa is something completely different from its relationship with every other part of the world. Um, so that's the, the first uh, question. Um, do we know anything about the origin of Mansa Musa's piety? Did he convert and or have a spiritual guide or did he have a particularly pious upbringing? Um, it's an excellent question. So the earliest sources that we have on the empire of Mali, um, uh, the earliest written source goes back to Al-Bakri in the 11th century, which I mentioned earlier, that said already at that point in time, all of the kings of Mali um, uh, were, uh, were invested with the title Al-Musulmani, which is the Persian term for, for Muslim. So that all the rulers going back to about 1050 CE are already uh, Muslim. It describes a situation in the 11th century where Mali is still religiously mixed people pr practicing the traditional African religion there and also practic it's pra practic practicing Islam and that there's peaceful relationships between them. So this process of cl clerical proselytizing is halfway complete. By the time the empire of Mali is founded around 1220 by Sunjata Keita, everybody in the empire of Mali is nominally Muslim. Nobody is not Muslim at that point in time. Um, and so um, rulers that come from uh, powerful families, when they are personally inclined towards scholarship, they'll go beyond just the learning of the Quran um, through tutors and often go on to study the advanced um, religious uh, sciences. So it was a matter of personal conviction for sure for Musa, but you could get a top quality Islamic education anywhere in West Africa um, at, that, at that time. Um, can I talk a little bit about my book, The Walking Quran? Someone asked, um, much of what I described today, though not all of it, um, can be found in chapter two of The Walking Quran, um, which gives a, a, a careful discussion of the development of the West African scholarly tradition in the medieval period, um, and especially this question of the separation of uh, state from, uh, uh, from church, for lack of a better word, and also um, the development of um, approaches to teaching Islam without compulsion. Um, let's see, uh, other questions. Considering the wide veneration of the Quran in West Africa, did the science of Quran recitations and things like Makamat affect West African music and possibly African-American music we have today? Well, there's no question that, so, there's an intermediary term in the question that's being skipped. It's, so the, there's the, re, the relationship with the Quran and then there's African, West African music. And the middle term between them is the griot, the uh, gawal or jeli, the, the, the specialist in um, maintaining oral traditions and history and also the specialist in poetic um, musical performances. So they are the, the, the key middle term that takes um, uh, elements from Islamic culture, filters them through an African language, linguistic register, because they don't sing those praise songs in Arabic, they sing praise songs in indigenous languages, um, and they use um, indigenous instruments such as the kora, which is an ancestor of the banjo um, that we have here. Um, they, they're they're uh, set to, they're full out live performances of oral history that come with music, and much of our um, kind of call and response in West African music is connected to griot traditions. Um, and, and it's really, there's a kind of astonishing level of um, connectedness to African approaches to those kind of sacred performances. What's coming to mind right now is the, the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, when the delegation is sent from Abyssinia and they, they drum 
and dance and sing poetry over music and the prophet peace be upon him applauds this um, uh, their performance which two things one it's a clear and vivid demonstration that music is not haram in islam because the prophet would not applaud a thing if it was forbidden um, the second thing um, is that that linking of poetry with drumming um, and with uh, uh, with transmission of, of knowledge and musical performance, that's something that you find across um, the African continent, but it's especially concentrated because you have a specialist group, Creos in West Africa that do that. And they're a huge part of the musical influence on all kinds of um, um, American music. Um, just one quick piece about that. There's a historian, um, Chris Arrett at UCLA, who talks about the fact that all forms of modern popular music are rooted in polyrhythmic performance, in other words, multiple drums at the same time, multiple rhythms. Um, and uh, those only occur um, in West African musical traditions. So West African musical traditions often have multiple drums playing at the same time, rather than a single drum uh, playing. And all forms of popular music uh, riff off of that uh, basic uh, piece. Will you give us a brief history on how things went from the greatness of Mansa Musa's time to the slave trade? Um, it, that would have to be a whole nother session. I mean, I normally, I, I do a lengthy lecture on the rise of the, the slave trade and Muslim responses to it because it's often uh, uh, misunderstood that there were, there were many Muslim religious scholars that um, did not consider um, any of the slaving activities that took place in the caliphate or in subsequent periods as being part of the Sunnah. So there were Muslim religious scholars in Northwest Africa and in West Africa that always considered that the Sunnah of the Messenger of God, peace be upon him, was to free every person that he had ever owned before he passed away. And that if Muslims wished to follow the Sunnah, they would have abolished the institution of slavery within a generation. Um, and they were sharp critics of slavery in Muslim society. So then they of course became sharp critics of the, the, the blasphemy of the Atlantic slave trade and they organized resistance to it. Um, and I've talked about that in chapter three of the Walking Quran. I'm writing a book about it, but it's not something that I can uh, treat in a short fashion. Um, I have a talk on it probably that you can find. <laughs> it's under the unfortunate title, Islamic Scholar Destroys um, a group of Afrocentrics are on the question of slavery. Um, so that it probably has about 50,000 views. It's from a talk that I gave at the Schomburg Center for uh, the Study of Black Culture um, that talks about African Muslim resistance to the slave trade and to the institution of slavery itself. So that's the best that I can do under these um, uh, circumstances. Recommend good resources for those new to this amazing history. Read the Walking Quran. It's a great place to start. Read Beyond Timbuktu um, by Usman Khan. Um, there's been a, you know, a sea change in the last generation of scholarship. Great stuff um, available on West African uh, Islam now that wasn't available a generation ago. Um, yeah, somebody mentioned in the comments, the co-authored a book called Jihad of the Pen, that's direct translations of West African scholars um, and uh, also an introduction by my uh, former student and brother and dear friend, Zachary Wright. Um, and uh, I write the conclusion. Um, let me just go through the last of the questions. Yeah, we need a session on the response of the Mali empire to the slave trade. Um, the short, uh, the short version of the answer to the to the question is that it's actually not until the fall of those imperial states that the slave trade can rise at all, because the imperial states are far too powerful. Nobody bosses Mansa Musa around. He's got the biggest army in the world. Nobody bosses the emperor of Songhai around when it's at its height. Nobody bossed around the emperor of Ghana. There was no uh, external slave trade. Um, uh, of any significant. In fact, there's times when it's clear that West Africa is importing slaves. Um, uh, West African um, kings, um, at least in the Kanem-Bornu region, are importing uh, Turkish riflemen because the Ottomans developed the first, um, you know, uh, really good firearms. So the, the rulers of uh, Kanem-Bornu um, bring Turkish slaves to shoot um, them and, and to serve as the, the rifle corps. Um, and that's a story for, uh, for another day. Um, somebody said, please make, uh, make dua for us. Um, and I think that that would probably be an appropriate way to close um, after, this, uh, after this hour. 
Um, oh, somebody said, oh yeah, I'm sorry. This was in the, this was in the comments. So I should, I should go ahead and get this one in too. Um, but it was uh, uh, visited Ghana some years ago with a friend who mentioned that there are over hundred languages spoken in Ghana. Was Arabic in some way similar to any of those languages or was it wholly new? This is an excellent question. If you really want the answer to this and many of the questions that you're asking, um, take my online course, The African Quran, because it actually gets into not just African approaches to teaching the Quran, but also the linguistic relationship between the Arabic language, the ancient Egyptian language, and other Sub-Saharan African languages. Um, the short version is that some of the languages that are spoken in, um, in the imperial states are directly related to both ancient Egyptian and Arabic. Um, and so uh, while it's wholly new in its kind of later introduction, there are linguistic connections that go, um, that go further, uh, further back. Um, and that's probably the best that I can do. Um, I'll just end um, with the, uh, by, by uh, offering um, a prayer of peace and blessings upon the, the seal of the messengers. Um, the course is not at, at, at CMC. The course is um, available directly online. I can type. Um, uh, so if you just look up, um, if follow me on Instagram and you'll get everything that you need to know. Um, about um, about the, the course, um, and I'll just close with blessings on the Prophet. In Thank you guys. It was wonderful spending some time with you. I'm going to go ahead and um, get out now. Um, peace and blessings to you all.